If you would, take your Bible and turn to Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations chapter 5. And this morning, if you would stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word and read all of chapter 5 together. Jeremiah in his lament here turns in prayer and cries out to God, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water that we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand of, to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sin and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their heads. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for, for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we might be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. These are the words of God to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence this morning, and this prayer is startling but much needed in our day. So we ask that you would inscribe on our hearts these truths, that we would be molded into the image of Christ, and that we would lament over the things that you lament over, and that we would repent and turn to you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Again, what we have here is no longer a lament, but a prayer from the depths of the heart of the prophet of God. He has seen the destruction of God's people. The young, the old men and women have suffered under the hand of the oppressors of the world. And the question is why? And the answer is because the nation has sinned. The nation has received unto herself false prophets, and they have left the Word of God, and they have done it stubbornly and willfully. And here the prophet calls to God and he asks, he begs, remember what has befallen our nation. Look, see our disgrace. He points to the inheritance that he had given to them and that had now been turned over to the wicked. And even their homes were no longer their own. 
The judgment of God was complete, top to bottom. The foundations had been shaken, and their homes had been given away. Startling, isn't it? But friends, if we read this, in, 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 I'm afraid that what we'll do is we'll come to this text and we'll say, well, you know, my home's pretty secure. Uh, when I get back today, it's still going to be there. So this really doesn't have any bearing for me. And we will miss the reality that this lament, I believe, is a wake-up call to all of us in whatever generation that we live in, but especially in our own time. It bears so much with the reality that we live in. We as a nation have left the principles of God, the Word of God, and the consequences to our nation have been great. Our nation, in much of its national conscience, has been given over to the depraved and the debauched minds of godless men. In Tennessee, last Monday... Three children and three teachers were slaughtered by a woman whose mind tells her that she, in fact, is something other than what God had assigned to her in her gender. And what does our nation tell her about that dysphoria? Ultimately, that your mind being what it is, what really needs to be changed is your body to comport with what you think in your mind. You know, friends, I've read somewhere that it is our minds that need to be transformed, not our bodies. And we, we, we in our wanton rebellion against God, in so many spheres of academia, keep promoting the mutilation of the flesh as the solution to a depraved and wicked mind. And we really do, in many spheres that so-called are educated, I had a grandmother that would say often, it's so sad, so much education and people are still so stupid. We continue to promote that, thinking that that is loving and, and, and affirming and kind. Friends, there is nothing loving and affirming about that. To tell someone to mutilate their body and that ultimately that will set them free from what ills their mind and their heart. And apparently, push this individual, this woman, to take an extreme hateful view and slaughter innocent lives. And in the wake of it, There was even some in this transgender movement that said, well, this is ultimately the shooting is in some part a tragedy, but kind of justified in their words because this is the outworking of hateful people telling this woman that she shouldn't be transgender. What debauchery we live in. What absolute, malicious, hateful lies that we walk in in our country today. Look at verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. 
it would be God's mercy if CNN would use verse 1 at the bottom of the screen when they report news like what happened last Monday. Our nation is afflicted in this moment with unbelief that is rivaled by no other point in human history. And I don't think that we should come to Monday and be surprised and horrified as though in the context of our nation, this is somehow out of place. That children would be murdered. When our Supreme Court, for the better part of my lifetime, stood and said it was okay to murder innocent children in utero. We've been peddling and living in this foolishness for so long that it's become normal. And friends, the reality is the Bible tells us that as human beings, we continually sin against one another. And that's been the reality in our history. But we have continued in a short period of time, I think, to allow these kinds of sins to compound. And the fall has been hard. We are now given over to a mindset that would even entertain the idea that murdering children is a just response to someone feeling disenfranchised. It reminds me of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows, there we hung our harp. Friends, our day is a time for lament. It's a time to weep over the reality that in rooms like this, for decades, we have sold out the doctrines of God thinking we could build the kingdom of God. And our, the, the fruit that we have reaped, I think, shows us our error. And what we have here this morning is Jeremiah lamenting over the loss of the home. And I want to contend with you this morning that America, in some sense, has suffered the loss of the home. Now, we might not have lost it to this point physically, but I don't think that's very far off for those who would hold biblical values. For those who would stand in the face of those who foolishly live in their flesh and rebel against God, they hate the reality that we would stand in the Word of God opposed to what they believe. And there's all kinds of clamoring that, that the religious minority should be silenced. The loss of our home is a, is a pretty heavy affliction. Home is the place of all of our earthly comfort and all of our rest. It's the receptacle of all of our outer blessings. It's the place where we gather with friends and we, uh, we find rest and we find quiet and we find peace. It's where we sleep. It's where we pillow our heads. Our, our wealth to some level or another uh, is displayed there in our homes. And most importantly, it's where we gather with those that we love. And if we are in Christ, it's the place where we should be gathering around the Word of God the most. This is the place of our greatest earthly joy. 
And so God has said it that way, that our homes would be a special place, a sanctuary for each one of us in some respect, a place where we can do the work of the ministry for the broad community out of that place. And so God has promised in His Word to bless those that He has received with homes. In Isaiah chapter 65, you'll find these words, starting in verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. What we find here is the people of God, the elect of God, working hard to establish their homes. The home has always been at the center of godly goodness to His people. But God also, not only does He bless us with homes, He also threatens to undo those homes in the life of those who would oppose Him. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Does that not sound like our day? Madness, blindness, confusion of mind. Who would have ever thought that a husband and a wife having children to the glory of God would be a controversial thing? And yet it is. And you shall grope at noonday and the, as the blind grope in the darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be the only opposed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not enjoy its fruit. The destruction of the home is one of the most lamentable realities then that we can face. Losing our home means losing the opportunity to do good to our family and to our friends. Do you not remember what our Lord said at the end of Luke uh, chapter 16, actually in the middle at verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that, you, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal glory. Inter- eternal dwellings, excuse me. There is an impulse there that we should use everything that we have physically, and I believe that includes our homes, for the furtherance of the kingdom of God in proclaiming the wonderment of the gospel. Our homes as believers are not just bastions where we go to find rest alone and shut ourselves out from the world, but when we are really in Christ, our homes will be places, and I believe this is one of the reasons why one of the uh, qualifications of an elder is that we are to be hospitable because our homes are tools for the furtherance of the kingdom. It should be the place where we first consume the Word of God. And it's from there that we should share it with others, namely our children and our grandchildren. One of the right outside of my bedroom door hangs a, an Avon uh, edition of the Ten Commandments. In 2023, it's not really apropos to our current design themes, but it belonged to my grandmother. 
And what a joy it was to know a woman who loved the Lord and who feared His name. And that is just a gift, a way that she shared her faith, I think, in some small way with me. So the greatest loss here in losing our homes is the loss and the ability to do good to others. Some would say God would never want us to lose our homes. He would never want us to experience the loss of the material things that we have. Great as it may be, that that would never be God's desire. Well, that would defame the Word of God and actually the providence of God and how He worked in the life of Israel here. Because God is the one in this instance who has judged His people and He has robbed them of their homes. He has taken them out and given them over to Babylonian captivity. And friends, here's the problem. I think that, I think that we're, so, we're so blinded to the realities of what the church has experienced that we come to verses like this. Verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners, and we think, well, the church really doesn't experience that. Maybe not today, but I would tell you this, that the reality for most of the church is that this has been the reality. This has been the lot of many believers. Jesus Himself, who bore our sins on the cross, uh, had nowhere to lay His head. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 37 and 38 tells us this. They were stoned, speaking of faithful people. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute which is what we're talking about here, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. These people are not behind us. They are before us in glory. The faithful of all of the earth have often been robbed of their material blessings for the sake of the gospel. And one man gives us four occasions that have been, in large part, given for the destruction of the home in the history of the church. One is war, two is famine, three is inhumanity or cruelty, and fourth, a lack of liberty to worship freely. Let me say those again. The reasons why typically we find people having been robbed of their home One is war, two is famine, three is inhumanity or cruelty, and four, a lack of liberty to worship freely. And we see this all throughout the Word of God, but not only throughout the Word of God, but also in God's providential working throughout church history. Cyprian, Christostom, Jerome, Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Tyndale, Rogers, Ridley, Latimer, all were at one point robbed of the joy of the peace of their home. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, says this, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Why heaven is so wonderful is because we envision there a place that ultimately the faithful will not be moved from their lasting home. They will not be dragged away. And again, we have to 
think of Isaiah 65 in light of this reality, this heaven, heavenly world. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who, dies not, who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Beloved, do we not long for days when our homes will be untouched by the sinful depravity of man in this world. And we should pray for such. We should pray for that time to come quickly. So then, knowing that this is something that, that God has done not only in biblical times, but he's, he's robbed His children, He's taken His children as a way of punishment out of their homes throughout, throughout church history as well, then the question comes, well, why does God allow that to happen? Why does He allow this to be a reality? Why are our homes destroyed? Why does God allow His children to suffer now? Why is it that in our own generation, the home is a place of controversy in defining it and in blessing it? Look at, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 24. I'll give you just a second to get there. Jeremiah chapter 24. And what we have here is Jeremiah having received a vision, and we'll begin in verse 2. Here, the Lord showed me a vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. But the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs very good, and the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord God, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs, that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land 
of Egypt. Here, what the reason that God gives for what Jeremiah is now lamenting in chapter 5 and the removal of people from their homes is that God is taking care to prune and to remove the evil of false teachers from among His people. And friends, here is a stark warning. We think that untruth doesn't matter. Why does theology matter so much? It's not, it's not really going to have an impact on us. We can believe wrong things and that's not that big of a deal. That's the mantra of the modern mindset. And the problem is that what we see in Jeremiah and in Lamentations is the reality of what happens throughout human history. And that is we as societies tend to incrementally allow in heresies and false teaching And we build ourselves to a point where we feel so tolerant of all of these different false teachings that no one would dare speak against them. And what is left is that God Himself has to prune away what is bad so that His church can flourish, so that His people can flourish. And I believe with everything in my heart That godly men and godly women, godly pastors in our generation should pray that if it would crush our nation, though it bring glory to God, that, that He would remove false teachers from our midst. That He would deal with those that the culture can't discern are ultimately bringing them to destruction. We should pray that God would deal with us according to our own leaving of His Word. And what he says here is that He will ultimately make a people for His own namesake and they will bear His likeness and and He will deliver them from the evil that is ultimately clouding them. God allows ultimately these kinds of judgments of robbing us of the comfort of our homes for our good that we might know Him here in verse 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And it ends, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Friends, can I encourage you this morning that if God were to, if we were to all go home today and the entire blocks of our neighborhoods were crushed in some catastrophic destruction and and, and there was suffering in that way. But He brought our nation to the realities of those two truths found in verse 7. I will give them a heart to know the Lord and they will return to Me with their whole heart. Would it not be worth it? Would God not be justified in having done so to bring His people to Him Self. God allows suffering that we might return to Him. You see, there is a lie that says that we can sin and we can be tolerant of sin and it ultimately will not, it won't impact our homes. The kind of laissez-faire live and let live. You can live your life how you want to live. I'll live my life how I want to live and it won't impact me. But here what we see is that both the good figs and the bad figs were brought into the same type of destruction. God deals with a nation as a whole often. And so we need to reject kind of ideas that say ultimately you can live in in your wretched depravity. You can live in transgender ideology or approving of homosexual marriage and it won't impact my home. Friends, that's just not the case. 
I could give the pulpit to parents this morning who have their children in public school systems where homosexual identity is promoted and applauded and, uh, and we would take up the rest of the hour doing that. And it impacts the conversations that they have to have in their home. And I think what partially was happening last Monday when those children were murdered and those teachers were murdered is we were seeing the reality of the outworking of the human heart against the family. And then further, when people inside of that movement, and I'm not saying that every transgender person affirms those words, but there's, there's certainly a, a swath that would approve this kind of vindication against Christian families. God is doing good even amidst tragedy, and we need to remember that. He also does this. He also allows for the removal of our creature comforts in our homes or our homes being stirred in some way that His truth would spread to other places. And this is a reality throughout church history as well. Calvin was exiled to Strasbourg. Latimer and Ridley, as they died, Latimer famously said to Ridley, play the part of the man, Mr. Ridley. We shall this day light a candle by, by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. Now, if I remember correctly, Latimer said that to Ridley, and then Latimer died very quickly, and Ridley burned for hours. Play the part of the man. I'm out. <laughs> um, but the amazing reality of that suffering is that they did light a candle. And though it's growing dim in England and in America today, it hasn't been fully extinguished. He allowed these men to suffer that the truth would be known better. Or Tyndale. He said, if God spare my life, ere many years I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than the Pope does. Friends, look at the chair in front of you. There's Bibles all throughout this room that sat there this morning because Tyndale suffered persecution. People constantly say, well, I want to see God's glory on full display. My response is, no church history. Because when you look through the lenses of church history, you will see the glory of God in our day. That that mustard seed is full flowering at this moment. That it has grown and that it has bore fruit. That we would have the Word of God to gather around this morning. Many people have suffered to bring us to this point. John, the evangelist, was exiled to the island of Patmos. And what do we get from that? The entire book of Revelation. The reality is God has been working supernaturally through the suffering of His people generation to generation that He might be known. So He does it not only for our good in, in knowing Him, but also that His truth would go throughout the earth and His glory would cover the earth. He also allows for this kind of suffering showing us our need and utter dependence upon Him and not our things. 
I don't know if any of you have ever experienced insecurity about home. Uh, I come from a very poor family, and, and when my parents divorced, uh, home was a very uncertain thing for a period of time, and it still impacts me to this day. And, and, and what that means is that at times, my dear wife has to remind me that I am not the ultimate provider for her and my children, that the Lord is, and that I ultimately don't rest in the possessions that we own, but I rest in the Lord. And, and Jesus is faithful to teach His people this. In Luke chapter 9, you'll remember that He called His disciples to Him and He says to them as He's sending them out, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no, nor bread, nor money. And don't even take two tunics. And they go out. And then later, in Luke chapter 22, He reverses this and it says, And He said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing, and he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has a sword sell his cloak and buy one. And they went out. And you know what they experienced after Luke chapter 22? They experienced more suffering holding on to all of their possessions than they did when they left Christ with absolutely nothing in their hands. And why? Because Jesus is not just teaching them, but He's teaching you and I that our needs are not met in our possessions. Our needs are met by our Heavenly Father. They're met in Him fully. Beginning to end. I could geek out entirely on George Mueller here. Who oddly enough, if we're talking about homes, do you know where George Mueller began really uh, in his young adult life? Growing into an understanding of the Word of God, God providentially had him in prison because he would go and he was kind of, if you know the story of Anna Delvey, uh, she was a, a fraud who conned other people into paying her hotel bills and she's been in the news lately. As I was reading George Mueller's biography, it dawned on me, he, she's, he is kind of the Anna Delvey of his day. He began by getting all of his friends to pay his hotel bills and then ultimately it would be found out that he didn't have the money and so they'd throw him in jail. But he would go on to be a man who faithfully understood that God was the one who supplied all of his need and not only his need, but the needs of all of the children in his orphanages that he would take care of. One of my favorite stories. Ah, see, I am. I'm geeking out. Um... One of my favorite stories is when Mueller was making his way to America on a steamship. The, the ship was enveloped in fog. And uh, he, he was trying to tell the captain of the ship, look man, i got to get to an engagement. I've got some preaching to do. You need to put the pedal to the metal, lay the gas on, and get us to wherever he was going. And the captain said, you know, there's so much fog, that's never going to happen. We're, we're, th this fog has, there's many reports, it, it stretches on for miles, so we're just going to have to move slowly. And Mueller says, oh, my dear captain, come here, pray with me. And then he looks at the captain, and he tells the captain, now don't you pray, because I don't trust you praying. I've known praying to my father, it's worked for this many years, so I'll pray. You be quiet, basically, that's paraphrasing. And boy, could you imagine being captain? He, he kind of, I would be like, is this guy nuts? And there they prayed, and when they opened their eyes, the fog was gone. Our God rules over everything in this life. 
He has given us our homes so He can sustain our homes or He can take them away. But as long as we are resting in Him, we have what we need for today. I pray that God would grant our hearts to believe that. You see, I believe one of the plagues of the modern church is its excesses. That we have so much and we get so rattled that all of this stuff may be taken away. Oh, if it's taken away to the glory of God and He builds His kingdom in spite of it, let it be taken. Last Monday, when we heard the news of these little children, and, and friends, I have to tell you, it was immensely personal to me. This Reformed Presbyterian pastor, brother of ours, has three little boys. I have four little boys. And one little girl. I have one little girl. And his little girl was killed and is not coming home. And I just wept over that. I would be utterly undone if any one of my children were harmed. I remember immediately the response of my heart in reading that and in seeing their family photo was, my God. You see, what happens in times of tragedy is we cling to the only thing that we have left to cling to. And in the moment of reading the tragedy of a child being shot because someone was so deranged in their own mind against their God-given gender, the only thing that you have left to hold on to is the living God Himself. My God. Augustine would often say, Tolamunum et tole deum. That means, for those of you that didn't grow up with Latin, Take away the word my, and you take away God altogether. That is when we can't cry out to Him, when He is not our greatest and our highest possession, we ultimately are living in a functional atheism. If He is not my God, we forget Him altogether. So it's, it's right when He takes things away that we lament the way that Jeremiah is here and we cry out to Him as our lasting good. But if we do know that He is ours and that we are His, again, you can take everything away and we won't be shaken. It's interesting, isn't it, to think about the life of David. You remember that David was, he was taken away from his home at two different points. One, under Saul and the next time under his son Absalom. And if you'll remember the narratives, you'll, rem you'll remember a very fine detail that makes a very big difference, and it's this. When he was leaving his home, when he was running and, and, and hiding from Saul in the wilderness, you won't find anywhere in the na narrative that Jesus wept. You won't find that he was distressed about having left all that he, uh, that he had. And why is that? Because David ultimately was resting in God, knowing that he was right with God, and that, that ultimately the Lord would take up his cause. But the sad reality is that when he, when he is banished from his home for a short period of time, at the behest of some betrayers in his own administration and his son Absalom, we find that he does weep. And the question is why? Why does he weep this time and he didn't weep the time before? And it would be my contention with you this morning that, that David weeps not because of what he's left, but because of why he's left it. And he knows the reason that he's left it is because of his own sin. 
When he sinned with Bathsheba, the Lord declared to him, the sword will not depart from your house. David knows the reason why he is being deprived of his things is because of the judgment of God. I hear people in our day give politicians a pass on their sexual immorality. And and they'll say something like this, God forgave David. I don't know that I want a politician who has the sword will not depart from your house written above him by the living God. God should impress upon our hearts the seriousness of our sin that our sin doesn't drive us from our homes. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking that's not really a reality in our day. You are so blind spiritually if you believe that. Do you know how many fathers have been driven from the homes because of their own sin? in leaving their wives and their children in our generation, so much so it's become normative. Sin has divided our homes and in certain subtle ways that we don't even think it's a big deal anymore. But it is a big deal. And it is a lamentable reality. I need to consider how in light of all of this. I know this is really heavy, but we need to consider how God normally brings about blessing and mercy to His people. Generally speaking, our God, when He's going to be merciful to His children, you know the way that He does it? Is He brings about a contrasting misery. If He's going to do something good for His people, generally He does it through something that would look outwardly to the flesh as miserable. If he seeks to give peace, it often comes by war. If he seeks to bring riches, it often comes by a period of poverty. If he seeks to give an individual group of people a nation, lo and behold, in the economy of the Bible, he leads them through the wilderness for generations. And if he wants to bring a man to a city that cannot be shaken... He often robs him of his own home. God works in a very mysterious way in bringing about His providences. And friends, as we suffer for the Gospel's sake, as we live in a day and a time when the Gospel will, I believe, unless God intervenes through the power of His Spirit, and we should pray for that, the Gospel will increasingly become a marginal component of our society and we as Christians will bear the shame and and mockery that our forefathers have in the faith. But I want to encourage you, don't let that be disheartened. Don't let that dishearten you. And don't let that, the question will come, so what do we do in light of that? And I'm, I'm afraid that we have lived with so many freedoms and I'm not decrying our freedoms. I'm thankful to live in a nation where we are free to worship. But friends, we have got to stop buying into the idea as Christians that the way forward is, to buy, is, is bypassing better laws. To, to insulate ourselves from suffering by a better law. I don't think that that is ultimately the solution. There are those who when tragedy strikes, that is their immediate response. Well, we need to pass a bill. But friends, can I tell you, the issue last Monday morning was not, and never has been, that our laws aren't sufficient. The issue last Monday morning is that the human heart is depraved. And it's the same issue that we face today. We live in a time where churches are more marginalized. 
And marriage is plagued by humanism. So you know what we could do to make a radical difference? One of my heroes in the faith in our generation is a guy by the name of Al Mohler. And I love something that he does consistently. I watch him at these Q&As at colleges and kids will ask, what can I do? What can I do as a young person to make a positive impact for the gospel? And you know what his answer is every time? The first time I heard it, I was like, well, that's really simple. His response is often, well, you should find a spouse under the Lord's leading, get married, and build a godly home. Because that unit is the unit that ultimately pushes against all of the unrighteousness in our own generation. The family. You, you should build a home. And you should use that home as a place where the gospel would flourish. Grandparents, you should speak to your grandchildren. You should always have the Lord's name on your lips. You should continually tell them how He has blessed your life and how He has taken you and, uh, from being sinful and wretched to being saved and sanctified. Your life should bear out the gospel. Because ultimately what we do in our churches is an outworking of what we do in our homes and vice versa. We should use our homes unto the Lord. I think that's the first thing that we should do. Our individual homes should be their own sanctuary where the Gospel is proclaimed and where the Word is made known. The second thing that I think we have to do in a, in a generation that is wicked and that is pulling at the fabric of the home is that we have to die to the idea of the perfect uh, American life. You know, when you go to Walmart and you buy a picture frame and there's the family and their teeth are all white and everybody's, you know, totally put together, that only took like 25 hours to probably get that one photo. That's not real life. And, and you know, one of the things that I remember as a young father is lamenting. I would go to these conferences and I would hear all of these big name, you know, and they would talk about how their homes were so perfectly ordered. And, and by God's grace, I think our home is is ordered well in some respects. But I would, we, we know our own homes. We know our faults and our failures. Uh, we, we know that we aren't perfect people. Well, friends, part of what we have to do to build the home that God wants us to build is we have to die to the idea that it's going to be heaven here. There are going to be difficulties. There are going to be problems. There are going to be things that we have to work through. And we've got to stop trying to build the perfect facade and instead allow the Word of God to reign supreme, supremely in our homes in such a way that our hearts are dealt with and that we live for His glory. You know, David and Chad are both brothers who work as, or have worked as chaplains. Um, and if I understand them correctly, um, you know, when people are dying in that particular work, you're often at the bedside of, of those who are dying. And it's, it's very infrequent that people who are dying are concerned with all of the creature comforts of their home or, or, or a dying person tells you in pride about all of their marvelous possessions or, or an individual who is dying is, is, is holding on to their home as the ultimate solution to what is facing them. When, when, when we begin to come to that hour where we realize our death is near, we don't hold on to our stuff. We realize this isn't ultimate. And even if we've built it to be the perfect modern American home, 
and it's polished and it's kept perfectly and better homes and gardens could come in and just take a photo shoot at any minute and it would be fine. On our dying day, we won't care. And so I think we have in that picture a reality of what Paul meant when he said that he died daily. Paul was not a man who was infatuated with all the things of this world. He was a man who was consumed with the Gospel and he sought to live that out wherever he went. So it should be in our homes. We should establish homes and we should not make the appearance of them the aim. We should make the Gospel the aim. And then I believe also we should cling to the normal means of grace. Some of you will say, well, what does that mean? It means the preaching of the Word, baptism, the Lord's table, fellowship with one another. The things that I think are so marginalized in our church culture. So, so much of the reason why I think the culture has gone the way of all the earth and that we are affirming from our pulpits. There will be people that will this morning lament that we haven't accepted transgenderism as a norm. And that's the reason why all of this has happened. And the reason that we have gone down that road is because we have made anything but what God has prescribed the central theme of the church. It's all about an entertaining show. It's all about stirring your emotions. It's all about manipulating you instead of what God has prescribed, which is that His Word would be heralded, that, that He would allow us to rejoice in conversions and new people entering the kingdom of God in baptism and that we would commune with one another and him through the Lord's table. I think it's interesting and I'll, I'll kind of wrap up with this. The juxtaposition talking about leaving home and our need, and I believe it is a great need. You know, you know where I believe families flourish the most? Around churches that are doing what God told them to do. I genuinely believe that. And they go hand in hand. Churches don't function well without families, and families don't function well without churches. We need both, and we need them to be healthy. But talking about leaving home, the, the narrative of Ruth just hangs in my mind as, we've, as I've thought through this. And, and, and the juxtaposition of the two main women throughout that narrative, uh, at, at the time of of Ruth, um, God met with His people there in the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. It was the place where the, where the um, ordinances of God were metered out. And we find at the beginning of that narrative, Naomi having left her home with her husband, and the question is why, it falls into one of those four categories, because there's a famine, and so her family leaves to go find bread. But do you remember when she comes back after her husband and her two sons have died in their search for food in somewhere other than where God had told him he would, they would, he would provide for them? Do you remember what she says when she comes back? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She went away looking for blessing somewhere out in the world, and she didn't find anything but bitterness. Ruth, on the other hand, this Moabite woman, she also left her home, but she left returning to the places where the ordinances of God were being administered rightly, or were at least being administered. 
And there she started out poor, having very little, having to glean in the fields. But where her story ends is that she marries the most wealthy man in all of the earth. Now, Christian ladies, I can't promise you that if you come into the church and partake of the normal means of grace, that that means you'll marry a rich guy. I wish that it did. But I will promise you this. The moral of this whole narrative, I believe, is that those who leave the normal means of grace and the way of God's true worship for the things of this earth will inevitably return empty. Conversely, those who leave their homes and their friends and they go into the place where God's Word is preached and His ordinances are rightly administered, they may start with gleaning very little, but as they glean on the Word of God, they will find themselves one day in a position where they know they are the wealthiest of all the earth because they have known the One who owns everything, God Himself. So how do we move against what is the greatest act of rebellion in the face of a culture that responds so foolishly to the tragedy of children losing their life to a deranged criminal? We build our homes, we put the gospel at the center, and we enjoy the normal means of grace week in and week out together. And I'm going to end with this. And I don't mean to create controversy, but this might. And as I'm sitting here today, I realize when someone speaks about the ordinance of communion or the Lord's table to a particular body of people, it's often that it creates controversy. And pastors lose their homes. And Jonathan Edwards would be one of those, now that I, I think about it. Uh, he, he was fired from one of his pastorates because of a position he took in reference to the Lord's table. Now I want to share something with you, and I'm certainly willing to have a conversation afterwards if you have questions. Uh, but I've come to a conviction in my own heart and mind, and I'd be, I think, sinning if I didn't share it with you. You see, I've wrestled for the better part of my Christian life, and I will continue to, because there's so much, I think, ambiguity around the Lord's table, and it's such a mystery, and, and there's so many things that I find some people are really certain about, and I just go, nah, I'm not as certain as you are. Um, and that's okay. We can have disagreements. Uh, but one of those things that has consistently just been a burr under my saddle is the frequency with which we, we celebrate the Lord's table in this place. And here's just Jay's story. It's anecdotal, and I'm sorry I'm wasting your time with my narrative because it's unimportant to a certain degree. But I grew up with two different kinds of churches, one family that went to one and one family that went to the Baptist church. And what I remember growing up as an individual is the one church that practiced the Lord's table week in and week out. Every week there was the Lord's table. And as I grew up, I really gravitated towards the Baptist church. Most importantly, because I felt in that place there was a strong sense of the Word of God being at the center of everything that was happening. And really, communion wasn't at the forefront of my mind as I grew into an adult and, and really the Lord providentially took me down the path of faith that He has in a Baptist church and Baptist movement. And I'm thoroughly Baptist in almost all of my theology. But what I, what I think inadvertently happened is I came from one church that did communion every stinking week. 
And then I went to the Baptist church in my little hometown, and this is what I heard. Well, we don't do communion every week because if we did it too often, it would become meaningless. And so you know what I did? Chad, you know what I did? I took that up as truth. Because that's what Baptists say. The problem is, is that through the years, I've struggled to really find that at the source of the Bible. Uh, that the Bible makes that argument. That if you take communion every week, and just to calm your hearts, I'm not suggesting that we take it every week. But I'm suggesting that in my own heart, I have to be intellectually honest with you and say that I believe we don't do it often enough. And here's the crazy thing, if I'm honest with my congregation, then why haven't you told us? Well, I might lose my house. But as it turns out, as I've dealt with this text this week, it's dealt with me. And if that's the outworking, if you all get mad at me for saying what I'm going to say, which is starting next month, we're going to start at LifePoint doing the Lord's Supper once a month. And I'll just end my narrative with this. I really do believe this with all of my heart. The reason why the one church, and, and I believe that there are believers in that particular movement, although it's a mess and it's a lamentable mess, that the reason why the Lord's Temple Supper became rote and meaningless was not because they did it too often. Do you know why I believe that it became rote and meaningless? It's because the oracles of God were not at the center of the church. Friends, I can tell you this. I kiss my wife on a daily basis, and it's never become old. And when we have the glory of God through His Word at the center of the church, I promise you His ordinances don't become meaningless. They just don't. And, and some of you may be stirred by this. And Jay, are you, say, are you trying to lead us in the direction of weekly? I am saying we are going to start doing this monthly. And when we have elders, they will decide how frequently we do the ordinances in that sense. But once a quarter is not enough for your pastor. And let me give you just one. Sorry, it's just shooting from the hip. I could talk about this for a while. But here's one reason why I think practically we should do it more often. Does the Bible teach us that when we come to the Lord's table, we should evaluate our hearts and how it is with our brothers and sisters in this body? It does, doesn't it? So if we are only on an annual basis having to deal with our own hearts, do you think that it lends in the direction of building the unity of the church or might it detract if we don't do it often enough? I think that taking of the Lord's Supper cause, more frequently causes us to keep shorter accounts with one another. Just one practical outworking in my own mind. Um, and there's a whole lot of theology around the Lord's table that I'm not touching in this. But, but friends, I, I genuinely believe one of the greatest things that we can do, again, in our day, in the face of, of, of the insanity of our culture, is not let's, let's lobby Congress and call August Pfluger and, and get better religious freedom laws on the books, I promise you that won't make our society any better, and it won't make us better Christians. But what will make our nation better is if we live in our homes to the glory of God with the gospel at the center, and we come in here and we live around the oracles and the ordinances of God Himself. That is our only hope in Christ. And the final thing that we should do is we should lean into the promises of God. 
I leave you with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, which I think is a a fantastic uh, verse. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you know Charles Spurgeon does a great, if you ever want to look up a fantastic Spurgeon sermon, never, 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 never is the title. Because he points out that Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 really should be translated uh, or rendered, He hath said, I will never, never leave thee. I will never, never, never forsake thee. That is, there are five negative imperatives there. Never, 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 never. And he goes on to point to Genesis 28, Deuteronomy 31, Joshua 1, 1 Chronicles 28, Isaiah 41 as being the reality behind that one verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, giving us the fivefold promise that our God will never, 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 never forsake us. And you know, it's also interesting as I walk through that sermon is, you know, at the center of the worship of God's people 200 years ago, do you know what it was at the center of their music? It wasn't bar tunes, although some of that might be true. It wasn't catchy phrases. It was the Word of God. The reason why modern music drives me nuts is because it doesn't impose the oracles of God on God's people. It, in, it influences with worldly ideology far too often. i just conclude with this as an example of it. You'll remember these words from the great hymn. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Isn't it interesting how in one verse the hymnist impresses upon the fivefold negation of God never leaving us or forsaking us? Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning thanking you for our homes, admitting in lament that we've used them selfishly. We've clung to the creature comforts and used them for our own glory far too often. And Father, we come before you acknowledging that we've been lax in our view of the family. We also come before you thankful for those families. And so, Father, we ask that you would stir in our hearts afresh and anew a desire to live according to your word, that we would make arguments about how we should gather together, whether it's the Lord's table or anything else, not because of things that we've said to one another so often, but because of what you've said in your word. And Father, I pray that we would grow to be a church where your oracles are delighted in and your ordinances are rejoiced in. Father, I pray that in this wicked generation you would remember what has befallen us. And Father, that we would not cling to our homes for the material comfort that they bring, but that we would cling to them as the means by which we might proclaim your gospel. Father, if there's one here today who doesn't know you, who's bought into a worldly ideology that applauds sin, Father, would you open their blinded eyes and show them the glory of Christ? Would you show them the wonderful miracle that Christ saves and that He lived perfectly and that He died perfectly in the place of those who would call upon His name? Father, would you do what only you can do and build up your church 